0: We're going to look at 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self, self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you have given us your word as a um, sure Um, and and solid thing to stand on that we can go to it um, and find truth that it is truth because it is your word. We pray uh, that we would understand this truth this morning through your spirit, that we would apply it in our hearts and lives, and that you would be with us as we do that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I've been thinking a lot recently about how people change. Uh, Part of that is because I have a four-year-old um, and I'm a parent, and part of it is because I'm trying to change uh, some things about how I eat. And so I've been reading some literature on these things, and I've found some interesting parallels uh, between that and the Christian life, and this passage in particular, namely this, that in general, people do not change just because you tell them to. I don't know if you found that true in your life. You probably have. Uh, that includes yourself, by the way. You don't change just because you tell yourself to. It's a little more complicated than that. And generally, I would bet the reason that we often make that mistake is this, that we think, everyone does this, we confuse information with heart change. We confuse uh, knowledge. We think, if I could just get the right knowledge across to this person... If my child or my spouse or my friend or my coworker just knew what I know about this thing, then they would change. That's why we uh, we say things as parents like uh, "because I said so," because we don't want to explain. We just want to tell you what to do and uh, and and have our children do that. Or a more adult version of this, uh, maybe on social media, we put out tons and tons of great articles that don't seem to do anything. They don't seem to change people, no matter how often we post them. It's because uh, we make a bit of a mistake that uh, knowledge will change. Uh, But that's not really true, and I actually ran across a great quote um, along these lines recently. Uh, A professor, I I believe in Oregon, said, um, knowledge is to change as spaghetti is to a brick wall. Knowledge is to change as spaghetti is to a brick wall. In other words, it's part of the fallen human condition that we may know that something is true. We may have heard it a hundred, a thousand times. We may even really believe that it's true, and yet it still have no effect on us or on our lives. So what would you like to change? There's a lot of things that I would like to change. Uh, Some of them are are small and, and kind of peripheral things. Some of them would take a a miracle of God, like reversing my my hairline. Um, But God also, because I'm a Christian, calls me to change in deep ways, uh, deep inside me, down in the center of my being. And if I have a hard time changing what I eat, or what time I go to bed, or how I talk to um, uh, my children, then how much more difficult is it to change how I love my wife, how I relate to and trust the Lord, these deep things. So we've got a bit of a change problem as human beings, and we'll look this morning at how Peter approaches this in the context of the gospel, the good news of Christianity. Sometimes we take a life problem and we go to Scripture. Uh, Sometimes we work it the other way. We let Scripture tell us what the problem is, and we've got a little bit of both of that happening This morning, Uh, Peter begins his letter with some standard opening lines. Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. Some other translations say a faith as precious as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied. In other words, may you be flooded with it. May you have it in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Peter reminds his listeners that he is an apostle. Of course, we know that Peter is a part of the inner circle, actually, with James and John uh, of the apostles, and so we should pay close attention to what he says here. Uh, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is very high Christology. Christology, we don't actually hear Jesus uh, called uh, Lord quite as explicitly as we have in this passage often in the New Testament, although, of course, it's implied on almost every page. Peter is saying, Jesus is a really big deal. He's such a big deal because he is God. And then, in fact, Peter ends uh, this short epistle uh, talking about the glory of Jesus. So he bookends his letter uh, with the divinity of Jesus and gives it a a weight uh, that it wouldn't have otherwise. So now we have introductory matters. Behind us, here we go. Peter, who was standing on the shore of Galilee, probably holding a fishing net when Jesus said, follow me. Peter, who made the great confession that Jesus was Lord, after which Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem and towards his suffering and death. Peter, who saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law at a touch, who saw Jesus transfigured, who fought for Jesus in the garden, but denied him in the courtyard, who saw the empty tomb, who ate fish with the resurrected Lord, and was told by him, Feed my sheep. Peter, who was given a second chance to follow Jesus even unto death, which is what he did. This Peter takes a deep breath and begins His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire it's a bit of a complicated sentence so we're going to look at it carefully The divine power of Jesus supplies Christians with everything that they need for life and godliness. Knowledge of Jesus is one of Peter's great themes in this letter, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later on. But it's this knowledge of Jesus that gives us access to his glory and his excellence, his precious and very great promises, and even stunningly and mysteriously, his divine nature. Not that we become divine, but that we are called out of. We escape, verse 4, the corruption and death of sin and are called into the light and life and love of the Godhead. Connecting to Jesus, in other words, is like connecting a dead battery to a live one. And sparks fly, and suddenly you have a power source in this engine of a new life sort of roars... Into being. By excellence, of course, we mean something very uh, specific that he was morally and ethically and lovingly perfect in every way on earth, that Jesus fulfilled the law. So you've got two things that Peter is saying meet in Jesus Christ you've got his glory, his majesty, his greatness, his worshipability, we might say. And his excellence, his moral perfection, his excellence of character. If you think about it, those are the two things that makes Jesus um, uh, God and Savior. That uh, these two qualities, that he has the power to save because he is God. And he has the moral authority to save because he fulfilled the law in our place. In other words, if sin has locked us into death, then Jesus is the sort of master key that opens that door, that slides in and hits all the right pins and tumblers, opens the door and frees us from death. Jesus is enough to give us life and godliness. I take that to mean justification and sanctification. Justification that we were dead in sin and have been saved by grace into a new life and sanctification, that in that new life we grow more and more and more like Jesus until either we die or he returns hopefully until he returns but we're we're all waiting expectantly for that so what is this knowledge that leads to life and godliness justification and sanctification this knowledge that leads to change that we struggle with so much peter mentions it three times in verses 2 and 3 he wants you to know Jesus the way that he does what way is that well It's not the way you know your across the street neighbor and and wave at them. Um, uh, mine, my across the street neighbor is Don. We ha- we have a good waving relationship, Don and I. Um, this is something more than that. It's Sort of the way you know uh, perhaps a family member that you've been through something really really hard with. Um, my this is fresh on my mind. My own father uh, had a health issue uh, earlier. In, in the year, um, back in February, I uh, had a malignant tumor removed. And so if you think about, you know, I have a basic knowledge of my father, right? I know where he's from. I know how he grew up. I know his sort of family of origin. I know what size shoes he wears, what size uh, shirts he wears. I know that he falls asleep at the same spot on the couch watching TV every <laughs> night. Um, but When they wheeled my father out of surgery and I got to hold his hand, I knew him in a very different way. And there were actually no words exchanged in that moment. There was no new, uh, technically no new information, and yet uh, there was a depth and a richness to our relationship that came out of that. A sort of relational, connectional knowledge of my dad in that moment that was very... Different, and that is the kind of knowledge that Peter is getting at. The kind of knowledge that will drive like real change, real heart change. But What does it take to know Jesus like this? Well, um, I've been down talking information a little bit. I said it couldn't uh, really change anyone, but what I meant was mere information. Um, I, so I hope you won't take that uh, what I've said to mean uh, that I'm downplaying the information that the Bible gives us, uh, doctrine and theology, propositional truth that we need as Christians. Certainly not doing that. In fact, uh, the reason that Peter wrote this letter was that he was concerned about some of the doctrine that was being taught about false teaching. So all of that is essential. We have to know Jesus's name. We have to know his hometown, his family. I don't think we can know his shoe size, but we can guess. Um, We need as big of a mental file on this person as we can get through the scriptures. And that is a part of the deep knowledge that we're looking for. uh, But we really need something much more than that. We need faith. And so if this basic um, informational uh, understanding of Jesus uh, is the raw material that we then apply faith to. So it's not less than that, but it is more. Faith is what breathes life into this knowledge. Faith is your jumper cables that you hook into the power of Jesus, into His promises and His perfection, into His glory and His excellence, into what Christian calls in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, life, life, eternal life. A few months ago, I read a book. Um, it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowin. Nowen is a little bit outside of our theological tradition. We might not agree with everything that he says, but I really commend the book to you. If you're not familiar with it, Nowen uh, ran across in, in France, I believe, a poster of Rembrandt's painting of the same name, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it put him into very deep contemplation. He eventually bought a, this is pre-internet, so uh, he couldn't just see it whenever he wanted. He eventually bought a poster of uh, this painting and studied it, uh, meditated on it. Now, at this point, one could have said that, uh, that he knew that painting very well. And yet, uh, soon after that, he took a trip to St. Petersburg, to the Hermitage Museum uh, in St. Petersburg, where the actual painting is kept. And through the generosity of some people uh, at the museum, he was allowed to sit for multiple days with this painting, all day, contemplating, meditating. Some of you may do that in the fall with uh, Razorback football, um, but this is a little bit different. And when talks about the differences in the painting at different parts of the day, in different light, where when he felt different, the painting looked a little bit different, um, when he's hungry, when he's tired, um, at different, as I said, different parts of the day, at different times. And so... Um, The question, to know Jesus the way that Peter is talking about here, is a little bit like now in in the painting. Have you sat with Jesus for a long time? Have you meditated on him? Have you studied him, contemplated him? Have you looked at him at different times of day, in a different light, all the strokes and colors of his life? Of course, eventually the analogy fails because Jesus is a person. He's not a painting. He is a, uh, a, a, an active, a dynamic uh, person who is right now at the right hand of the Father. And so you don't just sit with Him, you walk with Him. You talk with Him in prayer. You weep with Him. By faith, you're in a relationship with Him, and that relationship is what changes you And that is what Peter is getting at here. Remember, he says right there in the opening, he qualifies what what he's about to say. He says, to those who have obtained by faith all the benefits of Christ. And in verse 5, which we'll get to in a second, he says, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. As if that that first part, that sentence we just broke down is all of faith. And that is what it is. But, you know, if I was not a Christian, and of course I know a lot of college students who are not Christians and talk with them often, um, I I would be really frustrated by this idea of faith. And some of them are, for a few different reasons. Uh, For one, it can sort of come across as a special quality that Christians have that no one else does which is, of course, true in one sense, but is not true in another sense. It's true in the sense that, um, uh, you know, it takes something very special for us to be able to sing about a fountain filled with blood as a good thing and a beautiful thing. And so um, faith, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, And the power of that is something that Christians have that no one else does. But even non-Christians, in in another sense, all worship something, right? Um, And so uh, it is a quality that we have in one sense, but not in another. Second, Christians sometimes use this idea of faith as a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card. We may be in a difficult situation, we don't know what to say to someone, and we say, well, you're just going to have to have faith. You're just going to have to believe. And third, faith is famously difficult to define. Uh, It's almost impossible to define faith without using some of those other synonyms like trust or belief. Um, And so there's a vagueness to the idea uh, in some sense. But uh, Peter is giving us all these beautiful benefits through what we might call a, a faith knowledge in Jesus, and some of you here, and certainly many out there, would be very uncomfortable with that idea. Uh, but if we were going to try to define faith, uh, I'm gonna we'll try to do it here, and I'll give you some some things. Uh, what faith is not, and this is sort of borrowed from my boss, my friend Les Newsom. For one, faith is not just a positive mental state. It's not just expunging or purging your mind from any doubt. Second, faith is not the opposite of reason. In fact, scripture often talks about faith as reasoning from the facts to see uh, what is true. I believe we even read uh, today in the liturgy, uh, God says, come now, let us reason together. Uh, Third, faith is not mere agreement. I know a lot of people who say that they agree with things in the Bible, but it makes no real difference in their lives. So we can think of James uh, who says, you believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and shudder. So faith is not just acknowledging the truth of certain uh, facts. Instead, faith is grabbing onto Jesus in three different ways. Think feel, and do. We are all made up of these three things, knowledge, assent, will, think, feel, do. Faith is all three of those things moving in concert towards Jesus, but I would actually argue that even those three things are governed by a fourth that's even more important, and that is your heart. Your heart. So remember, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions in the Bible, which is how we Uh, use it now. We talk about thinking with your heart instead of your head, things like that. Um, In scripture, the heart is the mission control center of your entire being, of who you are, everything that you find good and and lovely, and uh, your vision of the good life. Tim Keller once said, uh, he said, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. So think, feel, do, govern by your heart. And so when your heart sees Jesus as good and lovely and beautiful, we might say worshipable, then that is when think, feel, do follows then you will know cognitively the facts of the situation that Jesus is the only one who can atone for your sins, uh, that you'll feel desperately your need for Him and do or exercise your will to trust and obey Him. Faith is your heart, again, the mission control center of who you are and all that you love and cherish and hope for, giving itself over to Jesus. All of this is divinely worked out by a good and sovereign and faithful God. That's what Peter is getting at here. Then he says, verse 5, Because of this beautiful transaction, whereby you've given your sin over to Jesus, and He has taken it and returned to you His righteousness, Uh, in that transaction... He says, for this reason, make every effort. Make every effort. The gospel is not rest or effort. It's rest and effort. We get to rest in the knowledge that through Jesus Christ, we're utterly saved by grace. Our eternal standing with God is is etched in stone. It cannot be changed. We can never be lost to him We can never be forgotten by him. We can never be pushed away from him. But in order to magnify his glory and excellence, in order to become partakers of the divine nature and escape the world and the flesh and the devil, we strive. We strive. Elsewhere, uh, Paul says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And here, Peter says, because of what Christ has done in our salvation, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. It's an incredible catalog of those who are being changed into the likeness of, of Jesus Christ. We don't have time to uh, break down each one of those qualities. But don't you want to be a person of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and affection and faith and love? We do. We want that. And not simply because Peter uh, or Jesus or anyone else told us to, like throwing spaghetti up against a brick wall, but because the same Lord who worked in us to believe is right now working in us to change us and make us more and more like Jesus, more in line with his character, and we put in effort uh, with him to grow. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it, Uh, for, uh, for, for those who have a theology that we do, that you would supplement your faith. I mean, what about faith alone? Well, if I could go back to the jumper cable analogy and just run this into the, into the ground a little bit, maybe, hopefully you'll never forget it, and, and you won't even be upset the next time your car is on the side of the road and your battery's dead. You're going to be like, oh, this, is, this reminds me of faith and Jesus. Uh, Jesus has the power to jump off your dead heart. Faith is the jumper cables, by faith you're connected to that power. But once Jesus jumps you off, the engine of your faith and life starts, and there are lots of moving parts in your engine. In other words, there are many parts to the Christian life, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, etc. But all of those are sparked by, they are uh, given power to by Jesus Christ, and you being connected to him by faith. And what's more, verse 8, Peter implies that these qualities already belong to Christians. They are yours and increasing. And by these qualities displayed, uh, you confirm, verse 10, your calling and election. When you act like a Christian, you tell the world that you are a Christian, and you confirm your future hope in, verse 11 the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Confirmed does not mean that you have to convince the Lord again, uh, that you really do believe. It just means that by your efforts you grow into Jesus himself, uh, and in that you reiterate that you are his. And here's what I don't want you to take away from this this passage in this catalog of qualities in particular. I don't want you to look at, there's, there's eight of them, by the way, in verses five through seven and say, I'm terrible at those. I could never keep those. What a burden. I mean, you might say that a little bit and re- be reminded that, that Jesus has, is all of those things for you. But if you look at this passage, the flow of this passage, if you are in Christ, he has already granted to you all that you need. For life and godliness. In His power, you strive to change, to become more and more like Him, knowing that one day you will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you're in Christ, your past, your present, and your future are set. You are safe. Or we might say you are secure. In my uh, research into uh, parenting techniques, I've learned recently, that a lot rides on your child knowing that they are secure, that they're, uh, that they're safe uh, with you relationally. And in a lot of ways, that's the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy person, including for adults, right? Whether we feel secure or insecure. What Peter is saying here is that if you're connected to Jesus by faith, you are completely, ultimately, Forever secure because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that means that you have uh, incredible freedom. You have the freedom to be yourself. The freedom to fail without losing God's loving care for you. The freedom to change. And one day, the freedom to find yourself in heaven (laughs) with Christ, like Him, Worshiping God forever. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you have provided us the means uh, to change. um, And that you've done that graciously. um, That ultimately, uh, it is through grace uh, that you have worked that in us. uh, But you, uh, in sanctification, allow us to participate uh, in our own change. As we grow more and more and more like Jesus... We pray that we would, in fact, work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we look at our sin and repent of it and uh, look to you uh, by faith so that we may be like Jesus. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.